0: What is the current state of religious liberty in the U.S. context? How are we to understand the rise of certain anti-liberal currents of thought in general and religious anti-liberalism specifically in the past several years? To what extent are basic norms such as the separation of church and state and the value of religious pluralism affirmed or denied in our present political context? These and more are the topics of today's discussion. Welcome to The Square, the podcast of the Project on Religion and Its Publics at the University of Virginia. My name is Kyle Nicholas, a doctoral student in the Department of Religious Studies. I am also a fellow with the BJC, a faith-based nonprofit in Washington, DC, committed to the protection of religious liberty for all. Today, we are joined by Micah Schwartzman, a professor of law here at the University of Virginia, and the director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy. Professor Schwartzman is a prolific writer and teacher specializing in law and religion, jurisprudence, political philosophy, and constitutional law. His many writings have appeared in the Harvard Law Review, University of Chicago Law Review, political theory, and many more. Recently, he co-edited a book entitled The Rise of Corporate Religious Liberty. Professor Schwartzman, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me.
0: So you are trained both in the law and political philosophy. So I thought I'd begin our conversation at a more practical level with the law and then we'll uh, progress to more political philosophy near the end. There have been several high-profile cases in the news in relation to religious liberty and church-state issues in the past couple years. Most recently the Bladensburg Cross case which dealt with the public financing of a cross and before that, there was the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission case, which dealt with whether a baker could refuse on religious grounds to bake a cake for a gay wedding. Can you tell us more about these cases, but especially um, how they relate to what you see as the trajectory of church state relations under this Supreme Court? and uh, during the Trump presidency.
1: Sure, the Supreme Court has been quite active in hearing cases involving uh, matters of religious freedom. So the two cases that you mentioned, the Bladensburg Cross case, which is titled American Legion uh, and Masterpiece Cake Shop represent uh, two important areas in which the court has been um, considering uh, uh, matters of religious freedom. So those two areas are uh, the extent to which uh, government can engage in religious expression and can support religion through speech and symbols, and the second area, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case uh, involving the baker out of Colorado, uh, is uh, is about the question uh, whether. Religious believers are entitled to religious accommodations or exemptions from laws that burden their practice. I would say there's a third area uh, in which the court is active, and that has to do with funding of religious institutions. Uh, A case that the court recently considered there is called Trinity Lutheran, which raised the question about whether a church uh, that operates a religious school was entitled um, to participate in a state program um, involving, it was about resurfacing playgrounds, right? I mean, a, f- a fairly uh, low-level funding um, program, but the question was, could the state ex- exclude that group? So we've got three major areas, right? One involving symbols, one involving religious exemptions, and one involving funding. Those, I think, are the three sort of general categories in which the court has been has been um, rendering decisions. In fact, in the funding area, there's a, there's a case currently pending in this term called Espinoza about whether uh, in Montana, schools, religious schools could be excluded from a, a state uh, funding program for uh, private education. So anyway, these are some of the areas where the court is active. I would say this, um, in each of those areas, we have seen a transformation of the doctrine uh, in the last uh, decade or, or so. Um, when dealing with religious symbols for a long time, the court limited uh, re- government religious expression. And it seems like at this point, uh, it's hard to discern what limits there are, right? If the state can um, support a forty-foot-tall Latin cross uh, in Bladensburg, Maryland, um, it's it's hard to know what kinds of religious symbols are, uh, would be off limits. Uh, in the Exemption context, we've gone from a Supreme Court in the 80s and 90s, which was quite skeptical about religious exemptions, especially when they impose significant harms on other people, now to a court, as we saw in Masterpiece, that is prepared to grant exemptions. Uh, Another important case is Hobby Lobby involving uh, the contraception mandate under the Affordable Care Act, where the court granted a religious exemption for the first time to a large for-profit corporation. Um, in any event, the Roberts Court seems quite solicitous of religious accommodations and exemptions, uh, and um, and lastly, in the funding cases, we've gone from a court um, through the '80s uh, in which there were fairly um, strict limits on funding, especially in the context of religious education, to a complete inversion of the doctrine, where now the, the court is um, seems on the poise of on the sort of precipice of requiring. Uh, religious uh, funding uh, or uh, funding of religious education by the government.
0: So this court is quite active, you're saying, and the future um, in relation to the exemptions, increasingly large amount of exemptions that they've been willing to grant, the future is pretty much open to know where this court is going.
1: So that's right. I think We've seen these three, as I'm calling them, inversions, in symbols, uh, in exemptions, and in funding, where there have been limits, and now not only are there not limits, but in fact, um, this court is saying that the state has to support religion in various ways. Um, In the context of exemptions, um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act has been a very powerful uh, legal tool uh, to require um, exemptions, and I should say I'm not opposed to religious exemptions. Um, I think in some cases they're quite important uh, and they show respect and toleration for um, religious minorities. But in cases where exemptions have the effect of imposing really serious burdens or harms on people who don't benefit from them, traditionally the courts um, have taken a really close look at those types of exemptions and limited them in important ways. And my concern is that the Supreme Court um, is not serious about taking into consideration the harms that exemptions might impose on, on other people.
0: So one thing that many will be familiar with, though, um, in relation to the court and in relation to politics is this sort of jockeying over power between liberals and conservatives, between Republicans and Democrats. Yet both of these groups are broadly liberal um, in their political outlook, in that they appeal to certain established norms and texts within the American tradition, um, and it tends to be a matter of interpretation and values um, where they differ in the practical import of that tradition. What is new, it seems, or at least less visible than it was before, but something that you've written about at great length, is the rise of religious anti-liberalism. Can you explain more first, a uh, two-pronged question, what you understand broadly the liberal tradition to be or to mean, and some characteristics then of the anti-liberal critique?
1: Yeah, let's take the first part of the question, uh, which is about the definition of liberalism. Right? Liberalism, of course, is a political tradition and a tradition of intellectual thought. Um, you know, pe- People will date it differently, but I think, certainly within the liberal canon, if you're thinking about political philosophy, um, the, the American tradition has had strong influences from John Locke, uh, from Adam Smith, uh, the, the, um, some of the documents, at least in the context of thinking about religious liberty, from the founding era, Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance, um, Jefferson's Writing on Religious Liberty, right? These help to inform our understanding of, of a liberal framework for thinking about religious liberty. Um, modern liberals are, are also, I think, influenced by Kant's work, by John Stuart Mill. And in the 20th century, some of the most prominent liberals uh, would include Isaiah Berlin, I think, uh, in the United Kingdom, and then John Rawls, of course, uh, as the, I think, the most prominent and most influential 20th century liberal political philosopher. So if you ask the question, what, what do all those um, philosophers have in common, right? They're, I think you can pick out at least a few important or salient themes. One is a respect for individual rights, uh, especially some basic liberties concerning freedom of conscience, including the freedom of religion, uh, and uh, freedom of speech and association. Those are important basic liberties that, within the liberal tradition, have been thought uh, to uh, to be significant protections uh, for for individuals um, against the government, um, but also uh, against other powerful institutions in society. Um, That doesn't doesn't exhaust, of course, the liberal tradition, which has emphasized the importance of rule of law, of separation of powers and checks and balances in government, um, and other uh, institutional principles that are designed to prevent arbitrary government, um, to prevent the government from Um, infringing on our freedoms. So we want to create institutions that reflect these important values of freedom and equality uh, and and, um, our institutions are set up to according to some uh, principles of design that are meant to to protect those values. So I take it that that those are sort of key aspects of the liberal tradition. When I talk about anti-liberalism, and and I think we see this more in in our popular political culture now, than we have um, probably any time since uh, since the uh, war World War II era. Um, I'm talking about uh, thinkers who reject crucial aspects of um, of liberal institutions and liberal um, thinking. And um, so here I have in mind when I'm talking about anti-liberalism. Um, um, so f- I would say first, um, some some thinkers who reject, uh, I think, a core feature of liberal political philosophy, which is to draw some distinction between the state uh, and political society and the church, um, some separation of church and state. Now, conservatives don't like this phrase very much. They think it's not in the Constitution. It, we, we inherit it in our constitutional political culture from a, a phrase of Thomas Jefferson's, but some distinction between um, church and state is quite important and central to the liberal tradition. Um, it's, it's demarcated in Locke's letter on toleration. You see a distinction in Kant and certainly in later liberal thinkers, um, and they are skeptical about this distinction uh, and, and want, want, in their own words, to integrate uh, church and state in important ways. Uh, so I think that's one sort of uh, one distinction of anti of anti liberal thought is that it rejects any kind of um, distinction or sharp distinction between um, church and state in the way that it has been conceived within the liberal tradition. There are I think other important elements of of anti liberalism. There's a sense of political populism, um, which I think liberals have to some extent anyway been um, skeptical about, and then. I think less so in the United States, but you see this more in parts of Europe. Think about Viktor Orban's platform of illiberal democracy in Hungary or similar movement in Poland, where there's a quite uh, explicit and concerted rejection of some core liberal principles. You see a kind of nativism with respect to um, immigration policy and, and um, an explicit appeal to um, Christian doctrine as, um, as a way of um, integrating uh, a society and as a way of expressing national pride. And so nationalism and religion are brought together uh, as part of a um, political ideology. And again, in the United States, that hasn't that kind of view hasn't had very much traction, but in, I think until recently, and now you start to see some public intellectuals make arguments for nationalism with a kind of religious valence to it. And it's that kind of anti-liberalism that Think we begin to see, at least reflected, uh, maybe there is some influence, but at least reflected in, in some of the doctrinal decisions, and that concerns me deeply.
0: In Helena Rosenblatt's history, recent history of liberalism, she focuses on the French tradition of Benjamin Constant and Madame de Stael, and she shows. Um, or argues that the French liberal tradition, which has a lot of the similar characteristics that you're talking about, was a sort of middle way between radicalism, Robespierre, the terror, and between reaction and theocracy and going back to the Ancien Regime. Um, But she also points out that one of the first references to liberalism was in a Um, I think by a Spanish priest in 1812 or 1813 in a newspaper, and it was purely critical. um, Those who wanted things such as uh, equal representation before the law, representative government, and basic freedoms, like freedoms of the press, were lumped together with Calvinists, with Jansenists, and with all sorts of other heretics. Can you tell me a little bit more about how the anti-liberals, or some of them that you study, not so much what their substantive positions are, but what their characterizing of liberalism is? What do they see liberalism as and is doing, and how does it operate for them?
1: Yeah, liberalism within anti-liberal thought is portrayed as a kind of relentless, um, oppressive, authoritarian... Ideology, which is comparable to communism or fascism, as one of the great political ideologies of the past um, um, few centuries, and and it's portrayed as equally oppressive as some of these um, other regimes which we associate with um, totalitarian governments, especially from uh, the you know the nineteen teens forward, the twentieth century. Um, totalitarian regimes, it's portrayed in some work as a religion. So instead of thinking about it as a political ideology in some anti-liberal thought, uh, liberalism is portrayed as a competitor religion. So for example, um, um, Stephen Smith has written a book, uh, Pagans and Christians in the City, in which liberalism is described um, as a kind of paganism. This idea stems from um, T.S. Eliot, who provided a framework uh, of diagnosing cultural conflict in Western societies in his book After Strange Gods, um, which was delivered as the Page Barber lecture at the University of Virginia in the early 1930s and then later um, in his uh, in his book The Idea of the Christian Society. And, and I think some anti-liberals have been attracted to T.S. Eliot's diagnoses and the, the basic idea is that Um, Western societies are riven by a conflict between Orthodox Christians and what Eliot called pagans, but by which he meant uh, secular liberals, right? people who have abandoned their traditional Orthodox uh, religious faith and who are either embracing a kind of neo-paganism in the sense of thinking about um, moral and ethical value as imminent in this world, not as transcendent as Orthodox believers would understand it. At least that is um, Stephen Smith's characterization of the view. Uh, updating Eliot's thesis but here the idea is that liberalism is itself a kind of religion a kind of paganism um, and what we have is in our society is a clash between two religious systems uh, Christianity broadly conceived or at least transcendent religious faiths Christianity Judaism um, perhaps other other religious transcendent religious views on the one side and secularists of various kinds on the other and so you know that there are different characterizations of liberalism, whether it's a competitor ideology or whether it's a com- also a competing religion or both, perhaps. Um, to the extent that, that you, some of, some anti-liberals are integralists, they may think that liberalism itself is promoting a kind of integralism. It's certainly uh, been charged with doing that. Rusty Reno has made claims like this. Uh, Adrian Vermeule at Harvard Law School has made claims along these lines. Um, but I, I think that's the the gist of the anti-liberal view of liberalism.
0: And so this tenor, though, for, for some people who, let's say, read a lot of political philosophy in the 1980s and are familiar with the communitarian versus liberal debate, there's a different tenor to, to the voices, to some extent, that you're talking about than those voices back then. Think of um, Charles Taylor, who wants to criticize a lot of aspects of an extreme sort of liberal autonomous view of the self, but he's ultimately, at the end of the day, a liberal Catholic, a supporter of toleration and secularism. So what is it um, about this um, religious anti-liberalism that has sort of gained a new voice or a more extreme voice or a more cutting edge voice?
1: Yeah, I I think you're right to draw some comparisons between The communitarians of the 1980s, I would say so-called communitarians because most of them rejected the the label as um, an accurate description of their own work. But think about Michael Sandel, um, Charles Taylor, Alastair McIntyre, who's probably the central figure for purposes of the resurgence or revival of anti-liberal thought now, um, and and a number of other uh, thinkers who echoed similar kinds of criticisms of liberalism. Um, some of that criticism was directed toward a liberal conception of the self. You, know, you have Sandel's uh, view that um, John Rawls and other liberals had, a, had an idea of the self that was unencumbered, that was defined in terms of um, pre-political rights, that was a kind of mischaracterization of our own, um, our own understanding of, our, of ourselves as Im- embedded within um, and always a part of um, some pre- pre-existing ethical uh, and political and religious community. Um, Those criticisms were not, on the whole, strongly programmatic. They were quite philosophical in their nature. Uh, There were some very deep criticisms of liberalism uh, as a result of the communitarian critique, but they didn't manifest in a political project. And I think part of what gives an edge to current anti-liberal thought is that there are, in fact, existing political regimes. Uh, in the world, again think of the regimes in Hungary and Poland, that seem to have instantiated the anti-liberal critique. That is, um, anti-liberals find uh, a nationalistic and a, a more religiously integrated political society that they can point to as a model uh, to compete with what they take to be the liberal political culture of states like the United States and various uh, governments in Western Europe. and. And so there is a, I think there is a, a new energy behind anti-liberalism in the sense that it's not merely a philosophical critique, but a comparison of political institutions, um, which embody a, um, deep differences in the motivating political philosophies
0: behind them. So, how do these new anti-liberals then, since they are more out? Outside or marginal to um, the church state settlement of the last 30 to 50 years, how do they relate to the current mainstream uh, political um, settlement?
1: Yeah, I don't, I mean, this is a question about whether it, the anti liberal thought that we're seeing, you know, in the last, especially several years, um, has any significant bearing on our own political institutions in the United States. And I think. I think the answer there is um, is that they don't yet, right? And, and there's just a question about to what extent uh, American conservatives will be influenced by this kind of criticism of liberalism. And here I think there are some reasons for concern. So for example, Attorney General William Barr gave a speech at Notre Dame not that long ago in which he described our cultural conflict in terms that are quite familiar from T.S. Eliot and from Stephen Smith's book and from other uh, I think anti-liberal critics. Um, He described the conflict as between religious believers on one side and what he called militant secularists on the other. And I think this is just a mischaracterization of the nature of political disagreement and cultural conflict in the United States. It's not that all religious people are on one side or all religious people of good faith are on one side and it's just secular progressives uh, and militants, uh, liberals or secularists on the other side. Um, In fact, there's a wide spectrum of views among people who hold sincere uh, religious perspectives, um, people who hold religious values in good faith, and many of them are liberals. Uh, And so it's a I think it's an unfortunate development, but you start to see some anti-liberal tropes, some themes of anti-liberalism work their way into um, official descriptions of of our political uh, and cultural circumstances. I mean, for the Attorney General of the United States to describe the world in the way that anti-liberals do is quite a striking phenomenon. Um, we can talk more about whether there's any influence in the courts, but I don't think that we're at risk, and I just wanted to be clear about this, we're not at risk of abandoning the, um, you know, generations-old liberal settlement uh, of religious toleration and separation of church and state, I think, in the United States. But there have been major encroachments by the court in the last several years, and I think it's appropriate to be nervous about the direction in which things are moving. And I also think that having anti-liberal thought within our conservative political culture shifts the what some people call the Overton window the range of possible thinkable policy options and there i think it may have some influence what what seemed outrageous and radical and far outside of the um, range of political possibilities in the united states is now discussed as if it were uh, you know a plausible political alternative and uh, and we should
0: track those kinds of changes. In relation to the, those possibilities, it was striking to see how quickly, for example, um, there was a development within certain wings of evangelicalism of what was called a King Cyrus theology, right? They wanted a man of God in office. And when there was the election of Donald Trump, they found a, somebody in the scriptures who was a deliverer of God's people but was not of God's people and was in fact in other ways quite immoral and they said well here's this paradigm we'll understand it this way and now we'll have this ad hoc uh, agreement and settlement with this um, with a political leader that just 6, 8, 12 months ago we completely rejected um, similar arguments have been made by uh, Catholic Integralists for a sort of ad hoc situational um, approach to political engagement so I'm I'm not familiar, I have to say, with the with the um, I,
1: I guess it's the evangelical th- uh, theology that you've described here. On I will say, on the um, Catholic integralist side, um, for example, Adrian Vermeule has argued that the um, that the Church can um, be quite flexible and adaptive in um, in working with all kinds of different political institutions. And here he draws on an insight from um, Carl Schmitt, the, um, the prominent Nazi um, jurisprude and constitutional theorist from the 1920s, uh, 1930s. Prior to his Nazism, Schmitt had, had been a, a Catholic and he wrote, importantly, on the political aspects of Roman Catholicism. And one insight there is, that the church was often accused of political opportunism, and Schmidt responded um, that this is, uh, there's a criticism here, but it's a mistake to think that uh, the church has no available responses to it. Schmidt Schmidt argued that the church was uh, a a representative in his words, political authority. It represented um, Jesus Christ in the world, and that that representation was fixed but that the um, but that the political institutional aspect of the church was flexible and adaptive, and so you had to mark what was what was um, static about the church, what was fixed, and what what could change. and And he made this argument that the church is quite adaptive. and Vermeule uh, at Harvard Law School has picked up this idea and and argued that um, that the church can. Um, you know, can cooperate and can work from inside various kinds of political regimes toward uh, a more integrated political society, and I think that that's anyway the the long term ambition. I mean, I take I take this to be a kind of ideal theory in the sense of no one no integralist I think thinks this is happening anytime soon, but they take a, a very long perspective, a kind of millennial perspective on how this kind of change should work. Um, So I don't know if that's about Trump per se, but it's a kind of longer strategic view about how the church and state might be related to each other.
0: You had mentioned really um, briefly William Barr's talk. And so um, coming back to more things that are in the news and popular media and some um, things like that, I know that you're somewhat familiar with the dust up between David French and Soa- Sorab Amari um, over the past couple months. These thinkers are both conservatives uh, with very different visions of conservatism. French represents a more sort of classically liberal, let's fight it out in the culture type approach, whereas Amari represents at least a dalliance um, or a, a questioning, if not rejection of the liberal tradition as we've been talking about. Yet both want the U.S. to become a more Christian nation. And so, less um, whether agree or disagree with their positions, what does this debate breaking out within American conservatism represent to you, especially in the light of rising pluralism and decreasing religiosity in America, um, given recent polls and surveys?
1: Yeah, I think the debate is just a debate between... uh, Christian libertarians or Christian liberals, on the one side that's David French, who thinks that uh, our First Amendment rights are sacrosanct. He thinks that everyone is entitled to religious liberty, to free exercise of religion, to freedom of speech, and that those principles are, in his own words, neutral, that uh, that, that everyone has the opportunity to exercise them and the state has an obligation to respect those rights. Um, I mean, we disagree, I would say, I disagree with David French about the content of those rights, uh, at least in some respects, Um, but at least his claims are, I think, familiar from within the liberal tradition, Um, at least some of the claims, anyway. Uh, That's on one side. On the other side, you have Amari, who is quite clearly influenced by uh, Catholic integralism, and I think by Adrian Vermeule. Uh, work at Harvard, uh, and and it seems I think fairly clear by earlier work, um, including from Carl Schmidt, Schmidt had drawn this very important distinction. And for those who have some background in political philosophy or in political theology, um, this distinction between uh, friend and enemy. Right? He theorized the uh, political condition as uh, as a antagonism between. Um, people who are friends and people who are enemies and what makes you a friend uh, is that you're willing to kill your enemies, right? The friend-enemy distinction is a distinction about the use of violence and lethal violence. And one attribute of contemporary anti-liberalism as we've seen it is a description of political society in friend-enemy relation terms. And I think on the far right, I mean, there's a, there is a break in American conservatism and it's to some extent here represented by Amari, who who view our political disagreements in friend-enemy terms. They think that um, progressives in our country are enemies bent on the destruction of conservative religious uh, institutions and conservative religious communities. And so they think that it's a luxury to have, um, at best it's a luxury to have Civility and um, respect for others' rights. These are um, these are mechanisms by which uh, liberals propagate a political culture, and they think um, that uh, Orthodox communities are uh, are at risk of destruction underneath them. And so, the only response is um, to to move in a sharp way against liberalism, and. French is caught by Amari um, as a kind of moderating voice who misunderstands the basic dynamic of our political culture. This is Amari's critique. right? He says to French, you know, you, you don't really understand what the threat is and that's why you're still wedded to your liberalism. If you did understand the threat, you would abandon it in favor of integralism. Right? We should move toward a Hungarian or a Polish model. Uh, into a kind of religious nationalism. And that's a really our only available option to fend off the kind of oppressive forces of progressivism and secularism. That's the basic debate as I, as I understand it. And I don't think that amari has got very much traction. As I said, I don't think integralists have made very much headway, but, um, but that's
0: the nature of their criticism. And some authors have argued that the increasing visibility of these sorts of critiques come from the breakup or the, the dissolving of a, of a conservative fusionism from the 1960s that um, under people such as William F. Buckley, right, social conservatives uh, in the early 1960s, libertarians and sort of anti-communist hawks all formed an alliance and that this broke apart during the Trump age. Um, this is more to say. Do you see this religious anti-liberalism, these sorts of critiques, uh, Amari, Vemule, as a fad of the Trump era within conservatism? Or do you see it now as a permanent, because of a certain dissolving of an alliance, a permanent, if not growing feature or portion of American conservatism?
1: I think it's too early to tell. The fusionism that you're talking about, uh, I think, is sometimes characterized as the success of the... American right under Ronald Reagan to bring together free marketeers, sort of capitalists and libertarians on the one hand, and social conservatives, religious traditionalists on the other, and to build a party um, that aligned um, both both sides. Uh, and the question is whether or not that fusion can survive or will survive into the future. To the extent that Trump brings economic populism as part of his message, the the claim is that um, that those who favor a laissez-faire, free trade, capitalist uh, or libertarian regime um, that they um, that that populism moves against uh, those views uh, in favor of a kind of religious conservatism that is economically populist, and that there'll have to be some kind of realignment in the direction of of uh, of a new style of American conservative politics, and one that integralists uh, find more attractive. Some people um, who've made arguments like this, I've already mentioned Vermeule, but Patrick Deneen has made a splash with his book Why Liberalism Failed, um, making criticisms uh, along these lines. So I, you know, what's the future of American conservatism? I take it as part of your question, and or at least, or maybe the the brunt of it. And I don't pretend to, to know the answer to that question, but of course, these kinds of arguments have certainly made some inroads and whether or not the party will be realigned in that way, I think is uh, is partly a matter of reaction to um, President Trump. But maybe there are, as you suggest, there are some deeper forces here. I don't think that integralism is um, is going to go away anytime soon as part of our public political rhetoric. I think that's in part because of deep-seated fears about, um, about um, changes, important changes in our political society and about how uh, traditional religious believers perceive those changes. Um, but also I think because, the, as I said earlier, there are some political models available now uh, and those models are likely um, uh, to be stable at least in the near future and so will provide sources
0: of you know, political thought and commentary. To close out our conversation today, and less specifically about uh, American conservatism and uh, in relation to the law, liberalism, or anything else that we've talked about, if you could point towards two or three issues, trajectories, or debates in relation to church-state issues and threats to religious liberty in the near to midterm future, what would you have advocates of religious liberty look towards?
1: I would say there are a few main areas, let me start with the law, a few main areas in which we have some important cases that raise issues of religious liberty that, that define the cutting edge of the doctrine today. With respect to religious exemptions, the court faces a, a question about how to understand the conflict between Claims of religious conscience and anti discrimination law. Um, and so, Masterpiece Cake Shop is a case involving a Christian baker who refused to bake a cake uh, for a gay couple, is an example of this, but there are many others. The court didn't fully resolve that question, and we will see future cases uh, like it. Um, but that case is just one example of that larger conflict. And the larger conflict is between our understandings of what um, the value of equality requires in our society? What does it mean to be an equal citizen? And how does the state protect our dignity as citizens um, both in political society and in the economic market? And then on, on the other side of the of this debate, how um, do religious believers engage political and economic institutions on equal terms? And we have disagreements about that that emerge in these exemption cases. So, for example, there's a There's an appeal pending before the Supreme Court in a case called Fulton against City of Philadelphia involving a Catholic social service organization that provides adoption uh, agencies, adoption um, referrals and foster care uh, services. And the City of Philadelphia says, look, if you want a city contract with us, you have to abide by our anti-discrimination rules. And the social service organization says, we're not willing to place uh, children with uh, gay couples or to recognize same-sex marriage uh, and the city decided to cut off uh, funding for that institution and that institution raises a free exercise challenge I mean th- that question to what extent do uh, do contractors with the state um, have to comply with anti-discrimination law is just another example of this broader conflict between anti-discrimination rules and Uh, and uh, claims of religious freedom. So that's one important area where I think we will have to pay attention to see how the court uh, will make decisions. Second area is about support for religious symbols by the government. Now that the court has signaled a willingness um, to allow uh, state-sponsored religious messages, I think we need to, to worry about the limits of that. Um, principle or that, uh, you know, this sort of new opportunity that might be available um, to, to those who want our political culture to more clearly reflect their religious views. Um, and again, especially with a kind of rising religious nationalism, I think we need, we need to be concerned about uh, whether um, people will exploit this, um, the, these changes in the legal doctrine. And lastly, with respect to funding, these are the three areas I mentioned to you earlier, right? Exemptions, uh, religious symbols, and funding. I think we're going to see the court move in the direction of requiring states to fund religious entities, which in itself might not not be a, a problem. But I think uh, this marks a major change in uh, the relationship between church and state in the United States, and it's something that we will um, have to study and. And be cautious about going forward because um, this, this um, new funding regime is going to raise the kinds of questions uh, that I mentioned earlier about anti-discrimination. To what extent will the state be able, when it funds organizations, um, to require compliance with rules that we think are necessary in order to treat people equally and fairly. So those are three areas I think that w- we ought to be concerned about, at least
0: with respect to legal matters. Professor Schwartzman, thank you for taking time to discuss these critical issues today on The Square. Thank you.